You're listening to the Bright City Podcast. To hear more about our gatherings, groups, and what's going on in the life of our church, visit brightcity.church or follow us, Bright City Church, on Instagram. Today's message is from a friend of Bright City, and we know you're going to love it. Suffering is about our theology of suffering, meaning like, what do we believe about suffering? What do we believe about God's position to our suffering? And what do we believe suffering stirs up in us? And could that actually be expectations? So I'm actually really excited. It's a message about suffering, but it's actually not. It's actually a really exciting message. So... The funny thing about, as we're processing this, we, um, as we are embracing this lifestyle of being dinks, which is double income, no kids, as we wait for God to give us children, we bought an Xbox for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was for the new Harry Potter game. Um, <laughs> we were not Harry Potter children. We read all of the books two years ago. Like, I read all seven books in three weeks, which was a wild choice. And so when this... It's nuts, actually. It's crazy. Yeah. It's fine. So when this game was coming out, we were like, we're literally buying an Xbox, and it's not even a game we can play together. It's worse. We pass the controller back and forth <laughs> and watch each other play because we love it so much. But sorry if this is a spoiler, if you were going to play this game, maybe. I don't know. But the whole point of the game is that you are this, it's said in like the 1920s, and you're this student who has arrived to Hogwarts with this power to wield ancient magic, which is different than the regular magic they use. It's like special ancient magic. And it takes you on this whole journey of learning the history of this ancient magic. And you learn about a girl who came hundreds of years before you, who also had this ability to wield ancient magic. And she wanted to use it. She discovered she could use it to take away people's pain. But when she took away people's pain, she stripped them of their humanity. Their eyes glaze over and they become like zombies and she thinks she's doing a good thing, but in removing their suffering, she's stripping them of part of their humanity. And so the whole point of the game is that you can't have light without shadow. You cannot have joy without suffering. You can't have the highs without the lows. And so as silly as it is that we have been passing a single Xbox controller back and forth for months, that is the thing that we have spent more time than we should processing. God is everywhere, y'all, even in the Hogwarts game that has truly been preaching to us about suffering, the purpose of suffering, and how suffering is a necessary part of our humanity. Yeah. So we are setting out to do three things this morning. It's a message about suffering, but really it's a message about expectation. So we're going to talk about why we suffer, what suffering produces, and how we suffer. So we're going to be in James 1. But just first, a little bit of context before we get into the scripture on who James is. You know that question, like, if you can meet anyone in the Bible, who would you meet? I think for me, James is probably that person. I find James fascinating. He's really interesting to me because he's... Jesus's brother, right? So like they didn't have bikes, but James grew up riding bikes with Jesus, right? Like Jesus probably taught James how to swim in the ocean. They did sibling things. They probably wrestled with each other. Probably this close relationship. Could you imagine being James at Hebrew school in the parent-teacher conference and they're talking to Mary and Joseph like, James is a little behind Jesus and his understanding. Could you imagine like living in that shadow? Like, Jesus just knows a little bit. He has like an instinct. He knows a little bit more than you do. He takes to it a little bit more than you do. Jesus is the good student, right? But this is James's big brother. This is his big bro. He probably looks up to Jesus in many ways, but then there's a shift. 
M. James. He pops up later in the Gospels, later in the Bible, and he's characterized as someone who doesn't believe. He goes from being Jesus' little brother, and then we see him again as they grow up and come into the maturity. He doesn't believe. Um, actually, in Luke 5, there's a story where Jesus is out healing, and it says the crowds are pressing in on him. And it says his family comes to meet him, essentially to stage an intervention. And there's no doubt that James is a part of this intervention. Essentially, they're saying, Jesus, this has gone too far. This is when he like, first started his ministry. you got to stop. Look at the crowds. What are you? I know, I get it, I kind of believe that you're God, that you've been saying some interesting things, but this is getting out of hand. We're just a small family from Galilee. We're just a small family from the backwoods, podunk, backwater. This is too much for us. Later on, James confronts him again, and he says, okay, if you are God, if this is really who you are, why are you doing it in Galilee? Why are you doing it in our little town? Go to Judea. Essentially he's saying, like, go to the big city and prove it there. Why would God be here? Why would God be in Galilee? If you're really God, go do it in front of some people. And then there's another shift that we see with James, and he pops up again in Paul's letters, and he's not characterized as someone who doesn't believe, but he's characterized, he's, he's portrayed as a leader in the Jerusalem church. He's a leader of, actually, the Jerusalem church. So there's this massive shift that happens again, where James goes from, he's not a believer at all, he's actually staging interventions with the family, the side group chat, talking about how crazy Jesus is and what's going on. There are side group chats and families, I'm just saying. You guys are, it happens, it happens. It does happen, but not to you guys. Uh, but he pops up again and he's a leader, he's a believer, he's a leader in the Jerusalem church. So this is James, he has a unique, special um, relationship and interactions with Jesus that really no one else in scripture has. And he writes these words. I'm going to read it. He says, consider it a great joy. This is James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you in advance for the ways that you are going to meet us in this room that you're going to meet us in our individual stories, in our collective story together. God, I pray that through this word, through your word, through your scripture, God, that you would encourage us. I pray that you would challenge us. But most of all, God, I pray that you would inspire us to know you more, to love you more, and to love each other more. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the first question we ask about suffering is, is why do we suffer? And I think the, the different question there is, what is God's position in relation to our suffering? And I think our instinct, uh, anyone a John Mulaney fan? I am a John Mulaney fan. I believe in redemption and reconciliation. I'm a John Mulaney fan. So he has a bit, he's a stand-up comedian, and he has a bit where he talks about being a six-year-old kid with a dad who's an attorney. And they're at the dinner table, and his dad says, how was your day today? And he said, well, my friend Billy got pushed off the swing. And his dad says, well, what were you doing? He said, I was over on the bench. And his attorney father says, so your friend Billy got pushed off a swing? And what were you doing? I was over on the bench. So your friend was getting pushed off of a swing, and where were you? And he's like, I was over on the bench. Because he's not understanding as a child that his dad is saying, you were just as guilty. If you were watching your friend get bullied and you did nothing because you were over on the bench, you're just as guilty as the bully is. And I think this is often how I, how we think about God in relation to our suffering. Either he's the bully doing it to us 
or he's passively sitting on the bench doing nothing, and in both cases, he's just as guilty. James invites us into a third option. James says, consider it pure joy when you face suffering. James is in a really interesting seat. We often talk about Old Testament God and New Testament God who are the same God, but feel very different in the Bible sometimes. Uh, Several years ago, we had this great idea to do a 30-day shred of the Bible. It's like a Bible reading challenge where you try to get through the entire Bible in 30 days, so you're listening to it on like five times speed. I don't know that it's productive, but it was a challenge and we tried to do it. And I remember us, we would just at night sit with our phone on three or four times speed listening to the Old Testament and looking at each other like I'm kind of scared of God right now like Old Testament God sometimes feels punitive and there's like flames shooting out of heaven and he's engaging with his people in sometimes a scary way and then New Testament God is redemptive and gracious and children are gathering around him it's like Old Testament season of Game of Thrones New Testament season of Ted Lasso like the vibes are just different And so James is sitting in a really unique spot because Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is just James's God. It's the God of his father and his grandfathers. But then also he's, Jesus is his brother. So the redemptive, restoring God is also his God. So when he tells us to lean in to suffering, there's a reason. James is a part, he is a first century Jewish man. And the story of God's people is just oppression. It's oppression and slavery and losing words and then these really short bouts of victory and then it's more oppression and more slavery and more wars. So a first century Jewish Christian's understanding of God, his depth of suffering was vast. And the only reason his depth for suffering could be so deep was because his belief in God's sovereignty was out of this world. The Jewish people, God's people, had an incredible faith in God's sovereignty because of what they had walked through as a nation. This is hard for us, for me, as an American. We're Americans, we don't start wars, we can't finish, and Toby Keith will put a boot in your behind, it's the American way. Like, this is hard for an American who wins to process this view of God that says, God has allowed me and my people to face hundreds and hundreds of years and suffering and oppression, and he's still been faithful, and he's still been holy. So the only way I could possibly get through that is because my belief in God's sovereignty, that God knows something that I don't, is in direct proportion to how much suffering I can endure. When I read Job, it feels like a cautionary tale. It feels like, God, please, no, not me. James would say, look what God did for Job. He let everything be taken away, and then he replaced it twofold. Job is not a cautionary tale. He's a story of hope. Look what God can do. When things are at their worst, look what God can do. When you face suffering, look what God can do. God must be up to something. You're going through something right now? Well, God's got something planned. James is inviting us to a different understanding of God's position to our suffering, that he's not the bully doing it to us, and I wanna be really careful. I believe and know that God does not delight in our suffering. There's suffering that sometimes we do to ourselves because of pride or arrogance or sin, and there's suffering that is inflicted upon us. God does not delight in either of those things, but and God is so kind and so gracious that he surely would not waste it. That is what James is inviting us into. So then we have two 
pills we can choose, and both are kind of hard to swallow. One is God does see our suffering, and he could do something about it, and he doesn't. And it's, sorry, kid, life's tough, get a helmet. Or God sees us in our suffering, and he witnesses us in our suffering, and he could do something about it, and he still doesn't because he's gonna use it. To be frank, I don't like either option. I would like a third that says God sees me in my suffering and immediately rescues me. That is my preferred way, and every once in a while that's true, but mostly it's that God sees us in our suffering, he witnesses us in our pain, he is aware of our humanity, that suffering is a part of the human experience. Jesus experienced suffering, we certainly will too, and he says, I am so good, and I am so kind, that I will purpose this. I will not allow this to be wasted. So when James says, consider it pure joy, it's an invitation to look at God differently, to look at God's position to our suffering differently, and to believe in faith that there is a purpose in suffering. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So I think one of the things about suffering, um, and that could be emotionally, that could be financially, that can be mentally, relationally, in whatever area that it surfaces in your story, in your life, is that it's often hard to see beyond it. There's something about the thing, whatever that thing is, the thing that, as, as Pastor Nick would say, that keeps you up at night that you think about, there's something about that that just feels like it's always like a dark cloud hanging around your head. It's the thing that sits in the back of your consciousness. It's hard to get beyond it. But I'd say maybe even more so, thinking through a kingdom lens or a gospel lens, thinking through it, filtering it through Jesus, it gets even more confusing. You pick it up, you turn it around, and it still doesn't make sense. Because these things, it really doesn't make sense naturally. So it's like, God, you're going to do what with what? You're going to do that with this? You're going to bring beauty out of these ingredients? You're going to bring redemption? You're going to make restoration out of these ingredients? Jesus, the kitchen isn't stocked. It's not going to work. I think we should come up with a better plan, a better course of action. And with that... um, I remember being maybe 19, 20 years old. I played football in college, and every summer we would stay uh, at school. We would take like summer classes, and we would just like full-on meathead workout. And we had a uh, strength and conditioning coach named Bill Gillespie. He was just a mountain of a man, just massive shoulders, chest, arms, huge. He actually was so big he couldn't really like get into the bottom of his pockets, so he would wear a fanny pack. And this is before it was called a crossbody bag. This was, I'm not hating, because I have a few. But he would wear a fanny pack, because he couldn't reach into the back of his pockets. And we'd be working out, and he have, would have a, like a bullhorn, like a megaphone. Um, and he would walk around, it'd be like hot, this is in Virginia, miserable, and he would say like, pain now, championship later. Pain now, championship later pain now, championship later on this megaphone, right? Like we're like in pain, suffering, it's hot outside, we'd rather be at home with our friends, yet we're here. But really what he was doing, he was trying to stir up, he was trying to stoke some expectation in us. He wanted us to see and connect. The pain that we're experiencing now is connected to the joy of winning a championship. Now, uh, at 33, I understand there's not a lot of glory in winning a Big South Conference championship, (laughs) but when you're 20, that feels like a really big deal. And this is essentially what the Holy Spirit inspires James to say when he writes, consider it a great joy, 
whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So in other words, what James is trying to say, what he's getting at, he said, he, he, what he's essentially doing, he's saying, I want you to see suffering as a trigger for joy. Hmm. Often we see like trigger, that's a, it's a, it's a negative connotation, right? Something triggers fear in us, something triggers anxiety in us. But what James is doing, he's like, I want the hearers of this word to, there's, like, to rewire their thinking, their brain, for when they experience, as he would say, trials or suffering or pain, I want that to build some anticipation in them that they're about to meet the person of joy. So this was actually a really a sticking point for me as we were like preparing for this message. So as I was reading, I felt like endurance was a strange word. Like, what is it? It produces endurance, um, the testing of our faith. Like, it just felt a little clunky to me. So I did some digging on that word, endurance. So the, the Greek word that's used for endurance has two definitions. The first is what we would like understand as endurance, it's the capacity to hold up or bear up under the face of difficult circumstances. Right. But the second one is the act or state of patient waiting for someone. In other words, expectation. Right now, like when translators are translating the Bible in 2023 into English, like this is the right translation. Endurance is the right word. But I just wonder if like James was sitting right here in this chair this morning. I wonder if we were reading the scripture, I wonder if he would be like, yes, that's what I mean. But also, not as, that's not really what I was trying to say. I wonder if we can read it as this. Consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces expectation. I wonder if he's really getting out that second definition. Expectation to act or state, state or patient waiting on someone. I, what he's saying is, I want suffering to trigger joy in you because it should produce the expectation that we're about to encounter Jesus, the person who's the very source of joy. See, James knows something instinctively that we may not know or that we may not like. James knows that suffering produces expectation that we're going to encounter Jesus in a fresh and deep and personal way. It's the type of encounter where we come into the presence of God, where we come into uh, God's love and God's joy and God's peace and we are transformed. It's one of those things, it's one of those encounters that we can't really put our finger on exactly how or when or what was said that happened, but we just know I'm a little bit different. I've had an encounter with Jesus and things are just, I'm seeing things a little bit differently. It's almost like um, when you're traveling and you have like a GPS, right? There's like preferred routes and they give you like a route that's 41 minutes longer than the route that you would rather take. And you're like, why would they even suggest that to me? Oftentimes in the kingdom of God with Jesus, it feels like he's suggesting the long way. He's suggesting the route that takes 41 minutes out of the way. And you're like, God, why is this even on the table? Can we take this off of the table? Uh, see, we're like concerned with productivity, efficiency, like getting there fast. But what Jesus is concerned with, what Jesus is really doing, he's taking us on the long route because there's, there's something about suffering. There's something about pain that we can only learn things through it, yeah. right? Like it's, it's God's preferred way. And that sounds really bad. And I don't mean like God is only wants to take you to the suffering because there's lots of joy in each of our lives, right? I think we can raise our hands and say like, yeah, there's lots of good things that happen as well. But it feels like God is taking us on that longer GPS route. And 
God's concerned with, like, he's concerned with building our expectation. He's concerned with building our endurance so that we can live and that we can flourish in his kingdom. So James writes this because he knows deep down in his bones that it's true, right? This is not like a James and Jesus weird sibling thing that they have going on that only they really understand. This is kind of the story that we see throughout the arc of scripture. And it's like that because Jesus has made a home in suffering and it's a really unlikely place. But if you think about it, it's the one place, it's the one place that is universal for every human on earth. Pain in some type of way, suffering in some type of way, trials, right? Not everyone's gonna experience success. Not everyone's gonna have investment bank accounts. For however, however like legitimately good our lives are, at some point in some way we are going to experience suffering and that is the very place that Jesus has made a home. Yeah. He's set up shop there. He's doing business yeah. there. So why does James say to count it all joy? Because Jesus because he knows like if that's where Jesus is, and if you're going to meet him, we're going to experience his love and his power in ways that are going to be transformative, in ways that we previously were unaware of. So it's like one of the great paradoxes, I think, of scripture, right? Because when we experience suffering, the natural reaction, our natural inclination is to turn away from it and run, turn and go. But with scripture, what we see is James is saying like, no, 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 if you want to meet Jesus, turn towards your pain, turn towards your suffering with expectation. And that's where you're going to meet him. That's where Jesus is. That was good. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So... If we know a little bit of why we suffer and God's relationship to our suffering and we know what suffering gives us, then we're left with some choices around how we suffer. Because we have accepted the suffering, the premise we have accepted this morning is that suffering is a part of the human experience. And so the choices that remain are around how we suffer. I believe we have two main choices. We can suffer here with God and with God's people, or we can suffer there without God and without God's people. And I will say that on my worst days or even my medium days, I've looked at my husband or looked at a friend and said, what is the point? Why be here? Why be with God? Why be with God's people? If I feel like I am having just as bad, if not a worse time than the people who are out there. So why choose here? A couple of reasons. One, God's people. God did not design us to suffer alone. We are built for community. Um, Last year, shortly after we left here, we knew we were about to start this IVF process and we were coming up on my birthday, my 29th birthday, which does mean I turn 30 soon, that's a whole thing. And I really, really wanted a prayer party which sounds silly, but I wanted our friends to pray for us before we started. And so we started calling friends and texting, kind of a little sheepish, like, is this weird? And every single friend said, of course this isn't weird. We're so excited, let's do it. And so they filled our homes and they built a balloon arch and brought food and spent hours speaking life over us and praying for us and giving of themselves in such a generous way. My husband may or may not have said it was better than our wedding, which I take a, took a little bit of offense to. I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that, but it was top three. It was, okay. it was top three. It was beautiful and I would have missed out. If I had gone with my instinct to turn from suffering, if I had gone with my instinct to hide, if I had gone with my instinct to suppress, if I had not shown up to small group nine months prior with the update every single week, no changes, no new prayer requests, it's the same thing. 
Still praying, if Brandon had not gone to his men's group and shared about his surgery and his shame and his fear, if we had not shown up with our suffering, we would have really missed out on one of top three nights for us with community. To suffer alone is a really cruel punishment. There's a reason that solitary confinement is a thing. We weren't designed for it. We were designed to be with God's people to suffer here. God didn't create us for suffering, but he was kind enough to give us tools. And one of those tools is, is his church. The second thing about how we suffer has to do with hope and expectation. I hope that I get to be a mom someday. I hope that we get to conceive and bear and have children. I hope that I get to see my husband be a dad and my parents be grandparents. I really, really do. But I expect God to be faithful. I expect God to redeem. I expect God to restore the years that locusts have stolen. I expect to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That is what I expect. Hope is beautiful. Hope is necessary. Hope is a good thing. I would posit anyone can hope. Here or there, with God or without God, anyone could hope. But the privilege of being God's kids is we get to expect. Expectation will take me farther than hope ever can because my expectation is rooted in a deep knowledge and understanding of who my God is. I have seen him up close in the micro and big picture in the micro deliver. And I want to say there have been things that have broken in me over the last two years of suffering and grieving that getting what I want will not fix. Suddenly having a baby will not fix the thing that has cosmically, spiritually broken in me because of the level of suffering we have gone through the last two years. So I have no choice but to expect that God is doing more than just giving me what I want. If the point of the story is just getting the things that I want, I want out. It's not worth it. There has to be, there has to be a bigger story going on. This has to be about a God that from the beginning of time, from James's people, from James's grandfather and great-grandfather has been restoring and redeeming and drawing his people to himself. This has to be about that. Hope is good. I am grateful for the people who hope with us, who hope for us when we can't, who speak life and visions and prophetic words over us. But expectation is a privilege of God's kids. That's what we lean into. I don't know every situation in this room. I don't know what you're walking through, what you're waiting on, how long you have been suffering. What I do know is that there is an enemy of our souls who would love us to believe that God has stopped, that God has given up, that God's working things out for everybody else but not for you. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. We serve a God who is so good and so faithful that he would allow suffering and would never allow it to be wasted. So I understand the thing inside you that says, I can't go there again. I can't ask God to show up again. It's too hard. And I'm gonna say we have to take it too far with our expectation. If we're only gonna expect a little, we may as well expect all the way. 
So we'll worship with expectation. We will pray with expectation. We will invite God in with expectation, not because I know the end of the story. I might be here in five years still telling you that I'm hoping to be a mom. I might. But I absolutely will still be telling you that I expect God to redeem and restore. God is good and he is worthy and he is here and we get to hope we can hope but we absolutely absolutely have to expect let's pray oh god i thank you for your kindness to us i thank you that you are more than sovereign enough, that you are more than gracious enough, that there is no thing big or small that you could ask us to walk through that you would not be actively restoring and redeeming. So God, my prayer is that we would rub that in, that we would take it too far with our expectation that yes, we would have the joy of hope, but that we would also understand that expectation of our God, of our Father, is a privilege and we get to expect. God, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening into Bright City. If this was encouraging, we'd love for you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you're an owner at Bright City, you can give online at brightcity.church or on Venmo to Bright City. Before you go, we'd love to speak this benediction from Matthew 5 over you. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We love you, Bright City.